Good morning. Welcome. Good morning to you joining us online also. Um, I'm excited about kicking into this new series. Uh, Let me begin with uh, a story. Uh, Simone Biles is an American gymnast I think we're all familiar with, right? If you watch Olympics at all. Um, Her seven Olympic medals tied Sienna Miller for the most Olympic medals ever uh, achieved by a gymnast. Um, Having won 25 25 world championship medals. She is the most decorated gymnast of all time. Some would say she's the best gymnast of all time. Of course, that's uh, opinion. In 2022, President Biden awarded her the Presidential Medal of, of Freedom. So at the 2016 Olympics, I don't know if you remember this or not, she won individual gold medals in the all-around, the vault, the floor, bronze, and the balance beam. And then uh, her, along with her, her teammates, uh, won the team gold, and they were called the final five. Um, more recently, though, I think we remember her from the 2020 Olympics. She was projected to win four out of the six gold medals. But then something uh, happened to her, she began to experience the twisties, they call it. She would lose her orientation in the air and could not, com- uh, could not safely uh, complete her, her um, gymnastic moves, whether it be a vault or whatever it was. Um, so she had this temporary loss of, 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 of what they would call air balance awareness. She just didn't know where she was at. So she ultimately did was able to participate in a couple of events and, and won um, a silver medal with the U.S. team and a bronze medal uh, on, on the um, balance beam, but it was way, way less than what they thought she would win. Um, so her partial withdrawal was justified by saying she had the twisties, all right? Um, so they were focusing on safety, and then they used some other language. We feel that there's a, a mental health awareness thing that we have to acknowledge here and that she's not in a state of mind where she can compete uh, safely. And I'm going to tell you, that is the first time on that level I have ever heard that language used for an athlete, that, that she couldn't compete because uh, of this really basically, um, you know, just her mind wasn't allowing her to do it. And she wasn't in a, in, a, in a good place to do this. And it, it began to bring some, I think, national attention uh, to the subject matter of mental health. Now, of course, we talk about it a lot here down the road a couple years later after a pandemic, and it's kind of a buzz where we hear all over the place. But what I begin to think about is that um, our country is in a state of twisties. We're, we've lost our orientation and awareness. And we're confused and we're broken and things are, are going awry. And um, uh, don't worry, I'm not going to, we're not doing a series on mental health here. All right. Um, but what, what we're going to do is a series on spiritual wholeness. Um, as I was um, talking with Pastor Aaron and some of the other staff on, on this year and what we should have for a, a, a big theme, it just seemed apparent to us that we need to talk about being whole in a fractured world. Uh, the reality that we face is that we're, we're living amongst all this brokenness and uh, the world is, is very fractured. So how do you and I deal with that and how do we do well? And I'm not going to talk on it necessarily from a mental health issue because I'll leave that up to other experts. I'm going to talk at it from a theological perspective. How, do we, how are we okay with God? We're going to look at that first and foremost because I feel... Uh, that's what the church should do. And then the rest of these things will find the proper place um, in, in regard to that. But So we're, we're going to look at, for the, for the next uh, year basically, this big theme of being whole in, in a fractured world. Now, the series we're engaging in this morning is nine weeks long. 
Um, there are three major sections. We're going to use this book here called Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World by Rich uh, Volodis. So this is the book we're going to use. These are, are for sale. If you want to get one of the books and, and kind of go along with us, they're out at the Information Center at a greatly reduced price. I don't know what it is, but you can check that out if, you, if you're interested in reading along. But we are using this material. It's kind of organizing the series for us, and it would be great supplement kind of material to what you're going to be hearing on Sunday mornings. Um, but I wanted to make sure I gave credit to this, okay? So if you see some quotes in here and some of this material used, yes, we're shamelessly using this book. To, to outline what we're going to talk about, okay? And, and I'll give reference to it when I use direct quotes uh, so that credit is given to him. Um, but I think we live in times that are unsettling. Anybody agree with me? Yeah, we live in unsettling times. Of course we do. And uh, our world could be categorized by terms like unrest, um, uncertainty, divisiveness. I have never seen us so divided as a nation. I've never seen people so divided. I've never seen so much vilification. I mean, just making people enemies and vicious attacks on, on one another. And then we're dealing categorically and, and globally with disease that we haven't done for a long time. And most of us aren't used to having to deal with that on, a, on that kind of global level. And, and then we're dealing, of course, with wars. They just never go away. It, it never gets better. But, beloved, listen, Jesus wants to radically reorient our lives. He wants us to become whole in the midst of this chaos so that we can be one to receive the love of Christ and give the love of Christ to a world that's just broken and hurting and fractured. I was struck by a comment that Rich says in this book that really got me thinking, yeah, this is the book we want to use. Uh, it's, it's right away in chapter one, but he says this, the most radical activism that you and I can participate in, the only thing that can ever change anyone is the love of Christ. We have to be activisms, uh, activists in the love of Christ, of receiving that love of Christ and giving that love of Christ to others. That's the only activism that we can participate in, that we can use, that will actually have any, any uh, impact on this world. And we live in times where it's common, if you disagree with someone, then you're supposed to disdain them and dismiss them entirely. So if someone says a comment I don't agree with, then I just dismiss them entirely, everything about them. And if I agree with somebody, then people think I agree with everything that that person has said, right? In fact, as a pastor, um, you walk this fine line all the time. Whenever you quote somebody, people think, I believe everything that person says. No, I just quoted something I agree with. I'm constantly clarifying because someone will say, well, do you know that that person also said this? Yes, I don't agree with that. We got to quit being ones that, uh, that are, are kind of like boxed in by this worldly approach to things where if, if you know, one of you says something to me that, that I think, well, that's wrong. That doesn't mean I agree with everything that you're, you're or disagree with everything that you're saying. You know, we got to quit using this kind of worldly framework, this cancel culture. We can't be people who do that kind of thing. Um, and we got to become one to embrace a biblical worldview. So here's how this series is going to break out. It's nine weeks. It's broken into three sections of three weeks each. The first three weeks, we're going to talk on what it means that we live in a fractured world. So we're just going to define, what is the problem? I do an awful lot of problem solving in my life. In fact, I would say my first 15 years when I worked at 3M, all I did was problem solving. You know what you got to do when you problem solve? 
You got to know what the problem is. Amen? I see too many people solving problems that don't exist. So what is the problem? Why is our world fractured? We're going to talk on that for three weeks. Then we're going to talk on um, a better way. And then we're going to talk on wholeness for three weeks. So really in this series, we're identifying the problem for three weeks. Hang in there with us. Okay? Because six weeks of this series is going to be talking about how we are whole in this culture that's so fractured and so broken, okay? So today we're going to talk mostly on the problem, all right? You with me on this? But we're going to get to majoring on the solution. After we do this series, we're going to do a summer series uh, from the book of Daniel. Daniel's a great example of holy living in a fractured world. And so we're going to just say, okay, here's a guy that lived in a, a world that was totally fractured, but yet he did well. And why did he do well? And so we're going to look at that biblical example. Then next, next fall, we're going to look at a series called Winning the War in Your Mind. And it's by Greg Groeschel, and we're going to have a book that goes along with that. I really feel um, that winning the war with your mind is like a subset to this. This is a great overall understanding of what's going on, okay? This will set like the baseline thinking, give us some commonality and language, give us some new term to talk with and to be able to talk about the issues that are going on. And then these other series that we will go in throughout the rest of the year kind of serve this, okay? You follow what we're going at here? So um, this will kind of set the tone for us. So with that bit of introduction, I'm going to jump into the message for this morning. Um, it's entitled Fracturing of Reality, A Failure uh, to Love. Simone experienced the twisties. Now, I don't know how you are. <laughs> I can't do one flip without experiencing the twisties. How about you? I totally get disoriented. I don't know if I'm going to land my feet or my head. I'm not very acrobatic kind of personality. I've done some of that stuff. Um, you know, I remember doing gym class where you had to do flips on the trampoline. Anybody? They don't do that anymore. It's too dangerous, isn't it? So I remember doing backflips and thinking, oh my goodness, I hope my feet land, uh, you, know, you know, yeah, no, I, I had no orientation. I just didn't do very good at that kind of stuff. I would totally lose my orientation if I had to do multiple flips. We live in culture that's totally disoriented, unaware, really doesn't know up from down. It, it's, it's so fractured. So reality has been fractured by sin since the culprit. We got to understand, sin is the problem. It has fractured our reality. And sin curves people inward. And ultimately, it's really a failure to love God and to love others. St. Augustine said this, sin is incurvitus in se. Incurvitus in se, it means it's curved in on itself. He was the first one to really, well, others talked about it. He he talked about it early on in in that church history. Sin curves you in on yourself. When Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, when original sin came upon the human uh, experience, they curved in on themselves. First of all, they believed the lie uh, of of the devil. You can be like God. What what is that saying? I know. I can do it. I don't need God. It's curving in on yourself. It's beginning to think that you're equal with God. And and they, they, they curved in on themselves and they sinned. And then all of a sudden they realize they're naked and they're sowing fig leaves, trying to cover up their nakedness and all that. Have you ever wondered what was going on there and what happened there? Well, here, here's what I think happened. Um, you could take or leave this. That's all right. I'm fine with either one. But when Moses would go and visit with God the Father, he would come down from those visitations, that face-to-face uh, encounter with God, and he would shine with the glory of God, so much so that he would wear a veil. 
for, for a couple of reasons. One, because he's showing what the glory of God to the glory would be fading as the, the longer he was away from God. And so he'd wear this veil. He would show what the glory of God. Do you think Adam and Eve shown with the glory of God? What do you think? They're in his presence. There's perfection. They're seeing him face to face. So what happens when you sin? Is God's glory going to show on you anymore? It's going to shine through? No, it's going to disappear. So I'm going to look at my wife, if it was me and Vicky there, and go, man, you're naked. She's going to say, you are too. We better cover up. And so they sow fig leaves. And it's just a pathetic picture. They exchange the glory of God for fig leaves. And fig leaves are so temporary and so inadequate to provide a covering. And, um, and, it, 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 and, and into the human experience enters shame. Shame has been a problem of sin ever, ever since. And God comes to the garden and he wants to talk to him. He knows what's going on. And they hide from him. And humanity has been hiding from God ever since original sin. So what is sin doing? It's causing us to be shamed. It's causing us to hide. And then they begin to blame game. God said, what have you done? Adam says, she made me do it. And Eve says, the serpent made me do it. And the blade game began. And people have been blaming one another ever, ever since that. So sin became this universal problem. It's the culprit. It's causing us to have twisties. We're disoriented. We don't see right because of sin. And, and, and Romans 3.23, you know, just sums it up really, ad, uh, really, really well when it says, for all of sin to fall, what? Short of the glory of God. There's that word glory. What departed from Adam and Eve when they sinned? I think the glory of God did. And they were naked and they saw their nakedness and they were ashamed and they blamed and they hid. And that's been the problem of people ever since sin entered into the, uh, the, the, the human experience. Now, please hear this. We can't begin to address spiritual wholeness and spiritual wellness, how to be whole in a fractured world without acknowledging the elephant in the room. Friends, the elephant in the room is sin. That's the elephant in the room. I find great value in looking inward at times and being introspective and becoming self-aware and confessing to God. I think that's a good inward focus, but sin focuses us inward in a very unhealthy way. Sin focuses on our wants and our desires and wanting to be in control of, of our lives or wanting comfort instead of challenge. Um, it, there's a lack of awareness of others. Um, there's no sense of community. It, it, I tend to dehumanize and, uh, those that disagree with me. I downplay their pain and their, <clears throat> and their perspective. That's the fractured world that we live in. That's why there's so much brokenness. And a simple the- theological answer to the problem of the world is this. Sin. It's sin. Are you with me? Let's not call it anything else. It's sin. Now, I've already talked about Adam and Eve and, and the fall in the garden, which happens in, in, in Exodus, or excuse me, Genesis chapter 3. But then it goes dark really fast if you read the book of Genesis. You get to chapter 4, and you read about their sons, Cain and Abel, who come to God with offerings. Cain bringing a, a blood offering, and, and Abel bringing, uh, or excuse me, Abel bringing a blood offering, and Cain bringing an offering uh, from the field, a grain offering. And God accepts Abel's offering, but he doesn't accept Cain's offering. And Cain gets extraordinarily mad. He's mad at God. He's mad at his brother. He gets so upset and so jealous and so full of envy that he ends up killing Abel over it. And you see right away, oh my goodness. Chapter one, two, three, four, and we got brother murdering brother. Sin is ugly. Sin is the culprit. And you can see right there, Cain didn't love his brother Abel. 
He was jealous and envy of him. So let me ask you this question, all right? What did Jesus say was the greatest commandment in the Bible? What's the greatest commandment? Love God and love people, right? Love God, love your neighbor, right? So we're going to read that today. Because sin ultimately is a violation of this great commandment. So I want you to read it out loud with you. Matthew 22, verses 37 through 40. Just read it. It's on the screen behind me. You read it while I read it. Here we go. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. All the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. So what sin did, friends, is it fractured this relational foundation of love that God intends us to experience with him and with one another. See, the great commandment, love God, love people, is the reality that we're supposed to experience. But what got fractured by sin? This. It's, 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 a, it's not loving God correctly and it's not loving others. Let me read you a, a quote from, from Rich in the book, Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. Listen to what he says. He says, 1 Corinthians 13 shows up in almost every wedding ceremony. It's a beautiful description of what love is, patient, kind, and all the rest. But it's important to note that Paul didn't have wedding bells, bridesmaids, and bouquets in mind when he wrote the passage. It was not intended to give the reader warm, fuzzy feelings. It was not, uh, uh, it, uh, this chapter was Paul's word to, of rebuke to Christ followers who had become fractured and uh, distracted. They are marked by great miracles and charisma among them, but they had little of maturity and character were counted. To end the chapter, Paul made it clean. To the end of the chapter, Paul made it plain. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Have you ever wondered, why, do, why does he say the greatest of these is love, do you think? Because faith and hope are pretty important, right? But what happens when we end up in heaven? Do we need faith and hope anymore? Well, yeah, kind of, but are they not completed? When you see Christ face to face, what will still be in, 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 in action? Love. Love will be. If love is the greatest good, Rich says, Sin must be the antithesis of it. Sin is not just a violation of law. Now hear this. It's a disruption of love. That is a profound statement. Sin is not just a violation of law. It's not just breaking a rule. It is the disruption of love. And that's a sub-point if you're taking notes. Sin is not just obedience of the law. It's a disruption of love. It's, it's much more than just disobeying some rule. It is a disruption of God's intention of relationship with him and with one another. See, the, the connection of love and sin is vital to understand. God's always about relationship. Sin disrupts relationship. If you don't understand this basic kind of nature of God, you're going to misinterpret so much of the Bible. Let's take, for example, the Ten Commandments. You know the Ten Commandments are just basically fleshing out the Great Commandment? Love God, love people. Think about this. The first, first four commandments, uh, the Ten Commandments, are about loving God. Put God first. Have no other God beside God. Honor God's name. Observe the Sabbath. It's all about relationship with God. It's all about loving God. If you think it's just some rules, then you're diminishing what it's all about. It's all about being in right relationship with God. You see, see, sin not only is a disobedience problem to the law, it is a disruption problem of love. And God says to you and I, we're to love him. And the way that love is manifested is, is I put him first. I have no other idols in my life. I trust in no one else but God. 
I, I, uh, I always honor his name. I revere his name. I lift his name up on high and I observe Sabbath, which means I set aside time to commune with God. So when someone says, I can do life without God, what are they really rejecting? They're rejecting God's love. They're rejecting relationship with him. They're saying, I don't need you. I can do life on my own, which is the sin of Adam and Eve. And the only way we can do life right is to be born of God, born of the Spirit, born of faith in Jesus Christ, not of flesh. John 3, 16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son to die for us, that whoever believed in him should, should not perish but have everlasting life. It, it, didn't, it didn't say God sent his Son so that we could obey some laws. It's God loves us. Amen? And he wants us to what? Love him back. Sin is not just disobedience. It's a disruption of love. Let's go horizontally, though. Let's talk about one another then. So when I love somebody else with the love of God, that means I have at the interest of my treatment of them what's best for their life. So if I say I love you, I'm saying, biblically speaking, if I say that, I mean I have at my heart of interacting with you your best interests. I'm for you, right? And so think about those, these commandments in that light. How we're to treat others. Honor your parents. Esteem them. Right? Why? Because you have, at the heart of your treatment of them, their best interests. Now, the, only, uh, the next ones I hope are obvious. Number six commandment, don't murder. That's not having someone else's best interest at heart when I murder them, amen? I mean, come on, Cain and Abel, come on, Right? Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't give false testimony. Don't covet your neighbor's wife or his stuff. When I do these things, sure, there's a disobedience to God's law, but there's definitely a disruption of love. If I'm stealing from somebody, I'm probably not loving them very well. What do you think? Take, for example, adultery or coveting a neighbor's wife. Let's speak to this one specifically. When someone lusts after someone else, what they do is they objectify that person. They turn them into an object for their pleasure and their desires. They dehumanize that person. They treat them as less than what God created them uh, uh, to be. Um, and it curves one inward on their own desires and it disrupts that true love. We're to show others having their best interests at the heart of how we treat them. See, when you begin to see sin, like I'm describing it, as curving in on yourself and a disruption of love, I think you're beginning to think God's thoughts and, why the, and beginning to understand why the world is so utterly fractured. I have a sentimental side of me. You probably don't think I do. I do. I mean, I can watch A Wonderful Life and I get teary-eyed, which is ridiculous because it's not that great of a movie. But anyway, um, so... <laughs> uh, God's love, there's a sentimental, emotional side to it. I agree with it. Sometimes in a song, I, 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 I will get caught up in the emotion. There's nothing wrong with that, amen? God's love is way bigger than that. It's this agape, others-oriented, selfless, sacrificial kind of expression uh, to someone else. And we got to understand that and allow that love of God to be that big and understand that sin disrupts that. And that's where it's so bad. It, it destroys that expression and, and how it's supposed to be uh, given and, and, and received. And um, we have to understand that in, in curvitus, you know, in say kind of thing of love, it 
curves us in on ourselves in a very unhealthy way. So here's a fact to face, knowing this. We can't talk authentically or accurately about ourselves or society without addressing sin. This Episcopalian priest named Barbara Brown Taylor is quoted in this book, and she says this, abandoning the language of sin will not make sin go away. Human beings will continue to experience alienation, defamation, damnation, and death, no matter what we call them. Abandoning the language simply leave us speechless before them and increase our denial of the presence in our lives. So what we're doing in this first message is kind of reframing sin. It, it, sin means that we're curved in on ourselves and we're missing opportunities to love. Are you getting this? We've got to know what it is, what we're dealing with. We've got to know what the problem is. And here's, here's where I, I really hope you listen to what I'm just saying next, because this is incredibly important. A rudimentary understanding of sin is a violation of law. That's rudimentary understanding of sin. It's a violation of law. A mature understanding of it is a disruption of love of God and others. That's maturity, which I want us to go towards that side. Because I think sometimes in the church, there's been this rudimentary understanding of sin. I'm doing something wrong. I, I feel bad about that. I feel super guilty. I shouldn't do that, and I won't do that. No, basically sin has at the root of it is this. I'm not loving you right, and I'm not loving God right. Amen? That's what is violating. That's why it's so bad. That's why we need to address it. Um, I'm going to read a quote to you from Good and Beautiful and Kind, Becoming Whole in a Fractured World. It's kind of going to shake your world a little bit here. Um, I debated whether to read this or not. Yeah. You can figure it out, you big boys and girls, right? But I think this has been super helpful for me. I've been in church a long time now in my life. Um, I started out church as a real young guy, um, not knowing anything church-wise, um, going kind of on my own to Souls Harbor in the Twin Cities. <laughs> it's such a wild place. And uh, so on fire for Jesus Christ and so uh, about. Didn't you remember the 60s and 70s at all, anybody? You know, um, I got... I have one story. I went to one church because, and, and my wife went in before me. I was just newly married. I had long hair. I went to church with jeans and a flannel shirt on. Ah, back in the 70s. Oh, you know. So she gets seated up there in the balcony, and they wouldn't let me into the church <laughs> to sit with my wife. Because I didn't look right. And it really was offensive at the time, you know. And uh, I had to work through some of that. But what I'm going to talk to kind of talks about some of that moralism, some of that judgmentalism that happens that we think is the Christian expression. And I don't know if it really is. I, I, well, I don't think it is, okay? I'll just say what I think. So listen to what it says here. He said, in my early days as a follower of Christ, I found myself obsessed with sin avoidance. Spiritual victory was found in not looking at porn, such, as a, such a low bar, he says, for holiness. I took inventory of the music I listened to, the movies I watched, and the company I kept. And I'm reading this, I'm going, uh-huh. This is exactly what I went through personally, too, and was told and was, was indoctrinated into, okay? If I sensed that any of these things would lead me into sin, I did my best to cut it out. On one side, this sounds like good discipline. But if this is the soul, then that's a key thing. It's not that we should participate in questionable things, but here's what he says here. Here's what he says. 
On one hand, this sounds like good discipline, but if this is the soul, the only or even the primary way of understanding sin, we'll find ourselves functioning as disciples of the devil. I really go, whoa, that's a strong statement. Let me explain, he says. In his book, New Seeds of Contemplation, poet and theologian uh, Thomas Merton observed the way we function as the devil's disciples. And he quotes Thomas Merton now, okay? The devil makes many disciples by preaching against sin. He convinces them of the great evil of sin, induces a crisis of guilt by which God is satisfied. We're not gone under the blood of Jesus Christ, but we're feeling bad. We're feeling guilty about the sin, okay? You see what he's saying here? And after that, he lets them spend the rest of their lives um, meditating on the intense sinfulness and evident reprobation of other men. In other words, I feel really bad about what I've done wrong, and now I'm judging other people for doing the same thing. And we're going to make sure they don't do those things wrong. In other words, by becoming solely focused on abstaining from sin defined very narrowly, we live by a crushing moralism that robs us from enjoying God and self-righteously places us above others. This is one of the sad expressions of Christian faith we witness or perhaps even perpetuate in our own lives. I experienced that very thing when they wouldn't let me into church. Follow what I'm saying here? I wasn't dressed right. I didn't look right. I didn't fit their moral code. And they rejected me, right? And I think if we're not careful... This is what we do with sin. We make it about a law thing and a judgment thing and a, a righteousness thing. We're asked, in reality, what is it? It is a disruption of the love of God and love of people. Are you hearing me on this? If you do not understand this, you will not address the problem right. Sin, my friends, is a disruption of loving God and loving other people rightly. All right? And that's what the Ten Commandments fleshed out for us and kind of told us. This is what it looks like then not to love God right and not to love others right. So I'm going to move on to a perspective I hope that we embrace here. I need to wrap this up quickly. Here's a perspective. The reality of the world, of this world, is that the power of sin is at work. That's the reality. We know it, right? That's not news to anybody. But here's what I want you to hear. I want you to personalize this now. Because it's easy to look at the rest in a moralistic way saying, that world's a big bad place. Oh, men, we need to look first and foremost at us. Right? We are often more weak and frail and broken and marked by sin than we think. We got to quit pointing the finger at the world and we got to begin to say, God, start with me. And this producing and fragmented reality. So we are more mar- weak, frail, broken, and marked by sin than we think, producing a fragmented reality that we're dealing with. Every now and then I get into a conversation more than I want to with someone who is disillusioned with church. And since I have the title pastor, they feel like they should tell me about what's wrong with church. <laughs> and uh, I frequently have to say when I get into such a conversation... And I pray for gentleness and empathy because oftentimes when people are saying that, they've had terrible experiences with church. And uh, so they're they're disillusioned with it. And what I find myself saying anymore is instead of apologizing or or trying to tell them how great church is, I don't don't do that anymore. What I I basically say, you know, church is a place full of broken people, right? People who are on a journey of becoming what they're supposed to become in Jesus Christ but haven't arrived yet. People who are still frail and weak and broken and marked by sin, oftentimes unaddressed, unaware at this point, still working on it. You know what's going to happen? You're going to be disillusioned if that's what you put your hope in. 
Right? None of you, what do you think? We don't, we, you know, we're, we're on this journey of becoming what we're supposed to in Jesus Christ. But, man, if you catch me on a certain day, you'd say, he's a pastor. Sometimes I tell myself, and you're a pastor? <laughs> really? You know, I mean, we're just weak people. We love Jesus, and we're, we're working and becoming what we're supposed to become. But I was talking with Pastor Serenia in, 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 the, in, the, in the foyer, and we're talking about... Um, trauma that you experience. I'll get to this in just a moment. I'm not, I'm not going to talk on that today much. But when my mom passed from glioglastoma, cancer, I was angry. She had such a hard life. My dad mistreated her so much. I saw all the pain in this gentle woman who just wanted to love others and be loved, never got the experience. And she died so horrifically, you know, and I remember, I don't like that. And the trauma of it was just overwhelming for me. And the unfairness just seemed just wrong. And I struggled with that for years. Years. And I still struggle with it some, if I'm honest with you. And here this last summer, Vicki and I were working away together. We like to do things and fix things up in the cabin and stuff like that, you know. And she looked at me and she just quietly said, I wish your mom was here so we could talk to her. And I decided to. And it's kind of like I'm working through it. I'm getting to this point where I'm going, okay, God, you're good. You're in control. You're in charge. But man, sin messes stuff up bad, you know, just messes stuff up bad. And so we are all on this journey of becoming what we're supposed to become. We have not arrived there yet. And I have a challenge for those of you who are here today who call yourself Christ followers. I have a challenge for all of you. And this is a challenge that I personally have been taking on uh, lately. I've been reading The Patient Ferment of the Other Church. <laughs> Pastor Eric got me out of this book. I think it's going to take me five years to read through this book. But I keep getting to stuff that just stopped me, and I just don't know what to do with it. I just keep thinking on it, and I, I can't move on until I kind of process it. Are you like that at all? And so this book has been just really good for me that way. But anyway, this author, Alan Kreider, says in this patient for men of the other church. This is his observation about, about the other church and what, why it was so effective. He said, it wasn't Christian worship that attracted outsiders. It was the Christians who attracted them. They lived such different lives, so full of grace and, and peace, so full of the Holy Spirit, they became these living epistles. And I, I just want to tell you something. I want to challenge you, Christ followers, on this today. I want to challenge all of us. Listen. Nothing we can do and perform, no technology, no preaching, no great church service, no revival will ever, ever equal an unfire Christian witness. Period. If you love Jesus with all of your heart, soul, and mind, you just love people around you, you love God, you love people, and you, that, my friend, will probably be the most effective Christian witness there ever could be. Amen. Nothing compares to that. The early church found that to be the case of why it grew astronomically. It's still the case today. Do I like technology? Yeah, I do. How about you? I love technology. I didn't really care for black and white TV. I kind of like color TV. Anybody with me on that? I like computers. And some of you go, no. I kind of like what they do. I just, I enjoy it. I like cars that... You can plug in a programmer to it and you can find out what's wrong with it and you don't have to analyze it. That's kind of cool. Some of you go, what is that about? That doesn't matter. Anyway, you follow what I'm saying? 
it, it just, I, I, I love tech. I mean, I'm kind of a technological nerd. I like the new stuff. But there's nothing technologically that replaces the effective witness of a Christ follower than living on fire for Jesus Christ. There's nothing that compares to it. I just want to challenge you with that. Um, and this brings us to this, this, uh, this uh, second point here. Um, and by the way, before I get to that point, um, also understand that we live in a culture that's broken and fragmented. And the culture that's broken and fragmented will act like a culture that's broken and fragmented. They don't know Jesus. They're just acting like who they are. Amen? So we shouldn't be surprised by that. But then I want to get to this next perspective. We're talking about the reality of the world we live in. Let's talk about the reality of God. Is that he is far more gracious, he's far more merciful, far more present, and far more loving than we'll ever know and realize. That's our God. Recently, I've been praying a little differently. Um, I've been reading about the ancient church fathers and some of these ones that prayed, and they would quiet themselves before the Lord. They weren't so talky. And I've been finding myself, I just sit down, put my hands open like this in, in, in an act of submissive posture. And I'm just, I just say, God, I'm just going to try to quiet myself before you for a few moments and just hear what you want to speak to me today. Uh, I know that you know my cares, you know my burdens. And I'm not saying that you empty your mind. I'm saying that you focus on Jesus and his goodness and his sufficiency and you just let him speak to your soul. And I think recently I was just doing this kind of a practice and I begin to realize, God, you're just so far more. I think of you as a peacekeeper. You are peace in essence. You are peace, period. You're more peace than I can even imagine or, 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 or fathom. And my mind is incapable of understanding it. You're beyond my scope. You're beyond my understanding. You're a God of more, 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 more. And all I've been thinking is he's a God of more. He's so much more than we realize or understand and perceive and acknowledge. And I just want to encourage you. The reality of God is that he's just far more. Amen. Just far more than any issue we're going to face. So this is basically the end of the message. Let me wrap it up for you real quick here. This week we zoomed in how sin curves us inward. And it's really a disruption of love. Next week we're going to look at powers, institutions, the demonic side of things too a little bit and how they set themselves up against Christ and how we need to address those and deal with them. And then in the third week, we're going to look at hindering wounds and trauma and how those things can affect the way we see the world. Um, that third week is Pastor Aaron, so I'm, go for it, buddy. Trauma's a big woofda. Trauma takes years. Has anybody been following Damar Hamlin? That whole, the, 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 the Bill's number three guy that got hit in the chest and it caused cardiac arrest on the field? Anybody following that other than me? Man, that's crazy. The whole football world's kind of been turned upside down by this trauma. And, and one of the, one of the um, announcers said, well, they'll get to the point now where they, you know, penalize, I'm trying to say what, you know, put it in a compartment, you know, um, and, and just go on with life. And she said, football players are really good at, at you know, segregating out their life. And, 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 and I go, and that's what we do wrong too. We put things in certain categories we don't think about. And, we don't, and I'm thinking, you know, it's some trauma. You just got to figure, you got to figure it out, man. You got to deal with it at some point in your life. Anyway, we'll, I'm looking forward to what Pastor Aaron has to say. Um, 
So we're going to end today with a quick what to do. Like I said, the first three messages are focusing on the problem. The next six are focusing on, on what, we, what, what's good, what, what do we do, okay? So we're going to be heavy on the solution side of this. But for today, we're kind of saying, what is the problem? But here's a quick starting point to uncurving yourself. Practice confession. Admitting your sin and confessing it as, as such to God puts you in a posture of humility and opens you to the power of God to work in your life. Practice confession. So take a few moments, maybe at the end of the week, consider your week, and then confess your sins and calm sins. If you mistreated somebody, don't say, oh God, I mistreated that person. Say, God, I sinned against them. I don't love them right. I was selfish. Start using the language that identifies the problem and, 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 and then admit it and, and confess it. This could also be done, of course, in a daily manner. Um, 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So this is the way you begin to uncurve yourself. It's just a short little um, thought for you to consider. But here's what I've been doing lately. And sometimes I don't do this real well because I have a lot of pride. Do you have a lot of pride? No one's gonna. Are you all tuned out because you're ready for the music, aren't you? <laughs> Name the wrong behavior, sin. Call the wrong attitude, sin. Don't rationalize it away. Confess it as such. Don't obsess on it. Confess it. Give it to Christ. Quit it and move on. Amen. But don't rationalize it away. So when I am fearful, anybody ever fearful in here? I've been admitting, God, that's a lack of trust in you. That's a sin. Forgive me. Cleanse me from that kind of fearful thinking. And replace it instead with a sound mind and peace on you. When I say something abrupt to somebody, which I know none of us ever do that, right? We never speak our mind, maybe without thinking about it. I'll say, God, I just sinned against that person. I didn't have their best interest at heart what I did. I just wanted to put them in their place. You ever do that? Forgive me, Lord Jesus. Give me a gentle spirit and patience and kindness instead of uh, having to be right. And I don't want to do that sin anymore. Cleanse me from that. Take it away from my heart. Begin to speak biblically to yourself and address your problems biblically. There's just power in that. Okay, I'm going to quit. Let's, let's pray and then we'll turn it over to Kyle and gang. Lord God, thank you for this uh, opening message to this series. I pray that it hit the mark with some folks today. I pray for any in here that maybe know about you, Jesus. Maybe are curious about you, but haven't really given their heart to you yet. I want to pray for any in that situation, Lord, that today would be the day that they would just say, Jesus, I need you as my, my Savior. I know that I am one who's far gone and in sin. And I confess that I am desperate and I need you to be my Savior. And I pray someone ask you into their life today, Lord, whether they be here in person or listening online. I pray for all of us who are here this morning, Lord, that our goal would be to love you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength, Jesus, to, to, to love God and to love others and to see that sin is a disruption of that love, that expression of love. It's, it's, it's more than just disobedience to some rules and to some laws. It's a disruption of relationship and of the love that you intend us to experience. And so I pray, Lord, that we would be mature in that way. 
And God, I pray that as we continue to look into the series, that you would just uh, do a, a work uh, of redemption in your people, a mighty work of refreshing, I pray. I pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen.